Heavenly Father, as we sit here or as we watch this later online, no doubt there are things that are weighing on our hearts, sadnesses, burdens, fears, things that are, might, might threaten to distract us from your word. Lord, I pray that no matter what it is, whatever heartache we're dealing with right now, we would lay it down at your feet. We would be filled with your peace as we come before you, as we come before your word, that your word would go forth and it would strengthen us and it would fill us with life and power and boldness to go out into this world, live another day, take another step, share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with one more person. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article published a few years back, the author explores the influence the response from an actor who wins an Oscar has on the audience watching uh, the Oscars. There have been a couple of studies done on this where the actors who displayed emotion and a perception of humility were viewed as more likable as opposed to those who displayed a sense of pride in their accomplishment. No doubt winning an Oscar is an accomplishment, uh, but what your respond, public response to that is uh, affects those watching this. The author also references a classic two ends of the spectrum contrast between two different people in the film industry. For instance, in 1970, John Wayne accepted his one and only Academy Award for his movie True Grit. I've never seen that. Maybe some of you have. In his acceptance speech, Wayne uh, appeared to wipe away a tear and said, quote, tonight I, feel, I, I don't feel very clever or very witty. I feel very grateful, very humble. That was his response. Contrastingly, in 1998, when director James Cameron won an Academy Award for his blockbuster movie Titanic, the author wrote that, quote, he high-fived the people around him and ended his speech by throwing his arms in the air and hollering, I'm the king of the world! Woo! The author then goes on to reference a quote by a then doctoral candidate, doctoral candidate at the University of Queensland who said, John Wayne's response tends to appear on best of speeches lists, and James Cameron's speech has become an infamous example of an Oscar speech gone wrong. The appearance of pride or humility is a very powerful thing. But what does humility have to do with our everyday lives, and how important is it really? We're going to take a look at a parable today. Actually, the second, like I said, the uh, second to the last parable in this series on Jesus' parables that explores this very truth about the place of humility in our lives. As always, the one who Jesus is telling this these parables to, matters as much as the parables themselves. The audience he's directing them at, we need to know enough uh, about that in order to understand the parables themselves. Over the past couple of weeks, Jesus has been directing his parables to his disciples, those who have already given up everything in their lives to follow him. This week, however, it's right back to the Pharisees, those who thought themselves uh, righteous because of how well they had tried to follow the Jewish law. So if you brought your Bible with you today, that's the wrong reference. It's Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 9 and going to verse 
14. I switched some of those digits around there. So we're going to be starting in verse 9 here. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke 18, verse 9, or you can look it up on your Bible app on your phone. And we read this. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The danger of this entire way of thinking, thinking about yourself and, every, and seeing everyone else around you, is that you don't think you're in need of repentance. And therefore, you don't think you have any need for a savior. That worldview flows immediately and very easily into a view that you're better than other people. You're better than someone who's living an immoral life. You're better than someone who leads an unsuccessful earthly life, at least in your mind anyway. You're better than someone who doesn't appear as blessed as you are. The root of superiority thinking is pride. The root of all of that is pride. And a belief that your perceived inherent goodness cancels out any need for repentance and therefore any need for someone else to save you from your sin. It's all inextricably connected, and so much so that it's the main downfall of humanity. See, it's one thing to help someone else in need. Even the most atheistic people can be altruistic, right? It's quite another to see yourself as the exact same person and on the exact same level as someone else you're helping out. That's even a lesson for us as believers in Jesus to see. And all of this factors into this morning's parable. So let's take a look at that. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Similar to our opening story this morning, there's a contrast between two examples of people. One whose behavior was to be praised and one whose behavior was to be abhorred. The brilliance with Jesus' story here, though, is that his audience thinks one thing is going to happen and the opposite ends up happening. And this is, this is what I mean. Who are the ones who were viewed by everyone else in Jesus' day to be the most righteous, the most God-honoring, and the ones to be emulated? The Pharisees, those were the ones in Jesus' day. If there was anyone who would enter the kingdom of God, it was surely going to be the Pharisees. If there was any, in a way, how everyone viewed the Pharisees was similar to how we may view many famous Christian leaders today. If, if, if there was going to be anyone who would enter the kingdom of God, it would be so-and-so that I see on TV all the time. Now contrast that with a tax collector. Remember, tax collectors were some of the most hated people in first century Jewish society. They had sold themselves out to the Roman oppressors in their neighbor's eyes, and they had betrayed their Jewish brothers and sisters. Not only did these men collect taxes from their fellow Jewish people for the oppressive Roman Empire, but they overcharged those amounts to line their own pockets and create very wealthy lives for themselves. So... If you took a public poll back in Jesus' day and you asked, between a Pharisee and a tax collector, who would God most be pleased with? You would come back with the results overwhelmingly favoring the Pharisee. 
overwhelmingly so, probably 99% for the Pharisee. There'd be some joker who would skew your results by saying the tax collector to try to be funny, but it would be 99% the Pharisee. Most of Jesus' listeners gathered around the Pharisees, including the Pharisees themselves, may have already thought they knew where Jesus was going with this. But they were very quickly mistaken. Verses 11 through 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this other guy here. This tax collector, I fast twice a day, I pay tithes of all that I get. Man, what a prideful person. When you look at that prayer, it's almost funny when you read that, how prideful this prayer is. As one biblical scholar pointed out, a similar prayer that this religious leader was praying. See, we look at this and say, man, what a prideful guy. But a similar prayer that this religious leader was praying could be something along the same lines as this today. God, I thank you that I'm not like a drug dealer or a person who has one night stands all over the place or a gay rights activist or an abortion clinic worker. Abortion clinic worker. Before we criticize even this Pharisee and his prayer, we have to ask ourselves the question, have we been guilty of thinking this way? Of praying a prayer almost, or even having those same thoughts along those same lines. See, here was the problem with the prayer of the Pharisee, which really revealed the the state of his heart. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this Pharisee measured his own level of personal goodness or righteousness as it compared to other people. The Pharisee measured his own level of personal goodness or righteousness as it compared to other people. Other people were his rule of measure of his level of personal goodness. Do you see that? How often do we do that? How often do we say, well, at least I'm not like this messed up person. I'm not, at least I don't lead a life of perpetual dysfunction like this person, or at least I'm a better person than that guy over there. See, it's so pervasive, even and especially in the church or the body of Christ, that we often don't see it. We're often very blind to it. And we don't recognize it in ourselves and how destructive that line of thinking and entire worldview is, comparing ourselves to other people. Simply put, what is very clear in God's word here is that we cannot measure any level of perceived inherent goodness of ourselves or make ourselves feel better about ourselves by comparing ourselves with anyone else. That's anti-Bible. Maybe you've never thought about having and and perpetuating that destructive worldview. Honestly, I think we all deal with that, right? I think we all deal with that. That worldview of making ourselves feel better by contrasting ourselves with someone else and saying, well, at least I'm not like this other person, is something that we all must repent of. And we all must repent of on a daily basis. 
It must be something where we ask God to transform our minds and bring even that part into more in line with how he wants us to see ourselves and everyone else. This basic worldview of making ourselves feel better by contrasting ourselves with anyone else can even be made worse by then compounding upon that by bragging to God about what we do for him. You can't negate that unchristlike way of thinking by them boasting about all that you do for God and in serving him. All that that does is make everything worse. See, the Pharisee thought he could shore up his personal righteousness by telling God all that he does for him. And these were things that were tough to do. These were things that were personal sacrifices on the Pharisee's part. Not only did he fast twice a week, but he also gave the tithes to God he knew he should. And that was Jesus' point. Even the things that, the, that required the most faith to stay regular with were not enough to cancel out this Pharisee's foundationally wrong way of thinking and seeing himself. What the Pharisee boasted about and thought he was shoring up his standing before God with was really just exposing his sinfulness. That's really all it was. If we operate under the worldview of, at least I'm not as bad as these other people, and instead, look at all the good things I'm doing for God, what this really is doing is exposing the sinfulness in our hearts that needs to be repented of and be made right with God. That's not what God cares about or wants from us. Any of that. In fact, it's the complete opposite of what God cares about and wants from us. What he wants from us is a complete reversal of this mindset. What's that complete reversal of that mindset look like? Well, exactly what is revealed by that horrible and sinful tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The one seen as the most sinful by everyone else also saw himself in that light. In fact, he saw himself as so unworthy of being in the presence of God, he kept himself a distance from the holiest place. The state of his sinfulness was so daunting and crushing to him that all he could do was cry out in agony for God to show mercy towards him. See, the main difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector was whereas the Pharisee measured his own perceived inherent goodness up to other people, the only one that the tax collector measured his own perceived level of morality up to was God. That was the only standard the tax collector measured his perceived level of morality up to. And that's what blows this whole parable wide open. Measuring our level of perceived personal goodness or functionality in contrast with other people will only always succeed in puffing up our pride. That's the end result. That will always be the end result, puffing up our pride. And what does pride always lead to, brothers and sisters? Destruction. Destruction. Measuring ourselves up to the standard of God 
always puts us in the right biblical and Christ-like perspective. It forces us to see that we're never, ever, ever better than anyone else in any way, morally, economically, societally, any way. We're equal to anyone and everyone else. The only difference between us and anyone else, no matter how sinful or dysfunctional we see them as, is that God has had mercy upon us. That's the only difference. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. That's it. In fact, the only thing that stands in the way between our souls and hell is God's mercy. That's the only thing. All we can do is come to God with our own sinfulness in recognition that we have no hope in and of ourselves. Our only hope is that God decided to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. Our only hope is to recognize that our sin separates us from God and there's nothing we have to boast about in and of ourselves. Our only hope is to recognize that Jesus took our place on the cross, paid the death penalty for our sin on our behalf, rose again to life to extend the gift of eternal life to us, and for us to take a hold of that for ourselves. Our only hope is to take that gift of salvation by repenting of our life of sin and making the decision to live the rest of our lives to serve him. And our only hope is to be so overwhelmed by God, having mercy upon our souls in saving them from eternal judgment by choosing to want to please him with the rest of our lives out of love for all that he's done for us. That is our only hope. That's why Jesus ends this parable with this, verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, that despicable tax collector, was the only one between the two of them who went home with a saved soul that day. The soul of the Pharisee remained lost because the Pharisee was only putting his trust in himself and what righteous deeds and works he could do. You see that here? Doing good works to try to earn our salvation has nothing to do with anything. Like the Apostle James says, we do good works to publicly show our faith in Jesus and that our only hope is God's mercy upon us, but just doing good works is meaningless. Our only hope of salvation is humbling ourselves completely before God and throwing ourselves upon his mercy. Likewise, one of the most prevalent and most deceptive and destructive beliefs today is this. I'm sure you've heard this before. I'm sure maybe you've even thought this at one point in your life. I've never killed anybody. And I'm certainly not as bad as some really evil person like Hitler, Stalin, or other people who led movements of genocide. So therefore, I automatically get into heaven. You've heard that before, right? Maybe you've even thought that. Jesus' parable today is a direct opposition and deconstruction of that false belief right here in this parable. 
In fact, that's Jesus' entire and ultimate point in giving this parable. It has everything to do with what happens with our eternal fates. If we live our entire lives operating under the false belief that since we're not as bad as someone else, we automatically get into heaven, we will never get into heaven. Jesus is very clear with his use of the Pharisee here. It's that exact same prideful mindset as the Pharisee has here. I'm not as bad as this other person, so therefore I automatically get into heaven. It's the same exact standard of measuring our own level of righteousness up to other people and using that to claim our entrance into heaven. And that is just as pathetically and woefully wrong as the Pharisees' thinking here. Instead, we all must see ourselves in the right perspective before God. We're all sinners. We're all equally sinners. And the only standard we can measure ourselves up to is God. And who will we always fall short of? God. Since none of us can measure ourselves up to God's perfect standard of holiness, our only hope is to rely on Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, claiming that for ourselves, and therefore throwing ourselves upon God's mercy on our souls. That foundation of humility extends to every nook and cranny of the rest of our lives. See, I was being satirical at the beginning of this message by asking the question, how important is humility to our everyday, everyday lives, really? In fact, Jesus is very clear about here, humility must be the foundation of our entire lives in every way. That then informs a Christ-like view of ourselves in relation to others. But it all starts with humility. And that humility impacts every area of our lives. We all must ask God to transform our minds and our hearts into building a foundation of humility for every facet of the rest of our lives. A foundation of humility starts at the same place our parable starts this morning. When we come to the conclusion that our lives are not our own, to then take and contrast with other people's lives, or to build earthly wealth and comfort for, or to seek pleasure and good times for, that's the starting point. That's what we all have to come to breaking ourselves off from. When does the Bible ever say, show me, where does it say, spend your life and time only on what makes you happy or brings you comfort or it makes you feel good? Where does it say that? Nowhere. It's non-existent. The, conclu the conclusion we must all come to is that we were created to be a part of God's grander plan and design. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. That's our purpose. That's the point of our lives. Are we living our lives for God's glory or for our glory? Are we living our lives to build God's kingdom here on earth? 
or to build our own kingdom of earthly wealth and influence? Are we living our lives to make a mark on this world for the gospel of Jesus or to make a mark for ourselves? Are we living our lives to fulfill God's plan for ourselves in the world or are we trying to force our own life plan to happen? When we give up any claim over our lives and see them as only God's to direct, to lead, to provide for in his timing, we are given a tremendous gift of freedom. We are given a tremendous gift of freedom. Why? Because when we're thrown into a personally frustrating situation, we are freed to look for what God is trying to teach us in that situation. When we are faced with a difficult economic or health hardship, we are freed to rely on and look for God's provision in his timing. When we have to go through a very physically, emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually painful time, or we even stare death straight in the face, we are freed to know that God has his perfect plan and he has his perfect reasons for what happens to us in that plan. As soon as we think of ourselves as being separate from God's plan or separate from our creation being to bring him glory and therefore we're better than someone else, we start hurtling down the road to destruction. Jesus says exactly that in verse 14. He's very clear about that. Everyone who seeks to exalt himself, especially in connection with anyone else, will be brought low to shove in his or her face the fact that we're all the same. And God's grace is the only factor in any of our lives. On the other hand, if we daily and continually give up any concept that our lives are our own to come up with any plan for or to get frustrated about when things don't go our way or just try to make feel good and we humble ourselves in light of who we are before God and His mercy and His grace over our lives, Jesus is very clear in verse 14 that God will be the one to exalt us. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have God be the one to exalt us with his perfect plan than me try to force my own way to make it happen. Amen? Amen. You know what that all really is? Just trying to force your own way of things to happen with your own plan. It's really just pathetic. It's really just pathetic. I would much rather see what God has in place, what God has in store for me, than for me to think I've got it all figured out. I think everybody here can also agree with that. Ultimately, when we humble ourselves in every area of our lives, what we're really doing is showing who we're trusting. Not only for everything that happens in our earthly lives, but for our eternity. Ultimately, what Jesus means by humbling ourselves before God and he will exalt us is him directly referring to our salvation and eternity spent with him. See, the world's way of thinking that so easily sucks us into, also operating in, is to focus on the here and now. Do what makes you happy now. Make that quick buck now. 
jump headlong into a situation without thinking about it because YOLO. But Jesus calls us to view our lives the other way around. What I mean by, by that is this. If we take the way we view our lives now by focusing on our future eternity, that completely changes our entire worldview. If we're focused on eternity and that our lives on this earth are only a disappearing vapor, that changes everything. If we're focused on eternity and God's plan for us for eternity, that forces us to view our whole earthly lives as a part of that plan. If we're focused on eternity and that this world is not our home and we're merely strangers passing through it whose purpose is to make a mark for God on it, that gives our lives a whole new purpose. This way of viewing our everyday lives through the lens of eternity then impacts everything in our lives. It impacts our marriages. It impacts our relationships with other people. It impacts how we see different things that happen to us. And it directly impacts how we view when it's God's timing to take us home. It impacts everything. So instead of allowing any small amount of pride, in any area of our lives, especially in how we compare ourselves with others. Let us instead surrender ourselves to what the purpose of our creation as followers of Jesus really is. To bring glory to God and God alone. If we make ourselves feel better by contrasting ourselves with others, let us repent of that mindset. Very simple. Let us repent of that mindset and instead thank God for his mercy upon us as we're just as sinful as anyone else. If we're seeking our own happiness instead of God's happiness in every area of our lives, let us repent of that mindset and thank God for his plan for us. If we're trying to make it to heaven on our own based on a false idea that we're somehow good enough and not as bad as the most evil people in human history, get rid of that today and instead repent of the same sinfulness that everyone has, taking Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf for your own. And let us all live out the rest of our lives seeing them as a part of God's grander plan. Let us all live out the rest of our lives for his glory. Then he will ultimately exalt us into his eternal kingdom. Be grateful for his mercy and let that mindset flow into every area of our lives. Verse 14, one last time. I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very clear parable. I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online later that thinks it's just their inherent goodness that's going to get them into the kingdom of God, I pray that they would see the falsehood of that. I pray that they would see the lie that it is straight from the pit of hell, led to, put here to lead people to deception and not put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anybody here who has put their faith in Jesus for, in their repentance, for their eternity, for their salvation, 
I pray that we would all seek your humility in every area of, of our lives and that we would catch ourselves every time we contrast ourselves with somebody else saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person to make ourselves feel better. Lord, I pray that we would catch ourselves and we say, oh man, that is, that's not the way Jesus wants me to think. I'm just as sinful as that person and it's only God's mercy and grace upon me that sets me apart. Lord God, thank you for pouring out your mercy and grace upon us because we know that the cross of Jesus is the only thing that stands in between us and hell. I pray that we throw ourselves upon that mercy. I pray that you would transform our minds and our hearts to see things, to see ourselves the way that you want us to see them. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.